0: Hey, this is Dan Wunderlich from Defining Grace, and welcome to Art of the Sermon, a show for preachers, teachers, and communicators. This is episode 15, and my guest today is Dr. Brian Russell. Brian is a professor of biblical studies and dean of the School of Urban Ministries at Asbury Theological Seminary. He spends most of his time at their Orlando, Florida campus. In addition, he's a writer, speaker, and author of the new book, Realigning with God, Reading Scripture for Church and World. This work focuses on making sure we're reading scripture the right way and translating it for those to whom we're called to preach. Here's my interview with Dr. Brian Russell. Well, it is my honor to welcome to the podcast today Dr. Brian Russell, who is a professor of biblical studies as well as the dean of the School of Urban Ministries at Asbury Theological Seminary, and he finds his home on their Orlando campus. He's also an author, a writer, a preacher, and a speaker, and uh, he was also my faculty mentor while I was a student in seminary. So again, I am honored to welcome Dr. Brian Russell. Brian, how are you today?
1: I'm doing really well, Dan, and thank you for having me. It's a real privilege, and it's great to catch up with you.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, I shared a little bit about your bio or at least your work bio. Why don't you explain to us what that means uh, in flesh and blood, what you do uh, a little bit about yourself and the context of your life and ministry?
1: Yeah, I have a uh, I've lots of uh, of titles. What what it really means and 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 it, I've I've had a a very uh, fortunate blessed life. Uh, what I really get to do for a living is is simply I get to be myself. Um I've I grew up um I mean my greatest gifts I've always been really good at at learning things and thinking and asking questions and solving problems and and essentially that's what a dean does and what a professor does and I've loved the scriptures I love the Bible I grew up studying it and so essentially I get the privilege uh, every day of of getting up and studying scripture uh trying to uh, listen to it uh, attentively live it out myself and then I get the opportunity to work with uh, men and women who've been called into some form of of ministry. A lot of them are going into local churches, but we also have counselors and and, and such at at Asbury, and just have the privilege of helping other people to do what I would say, read scripture well, read it for both persons in the church and persons who um, currently aren't following Jesus, and trying to to make it explainable, or as as I like to say, try to teach people to speak human so we can study the deep truths and communicate them lovingly, um, compellingly, and in ways that open people up to allowing God's grace to transform them.
0: Oh, that's, that's wonderful. And one of the things that I've always appreciated about you uh, when you were my professor, when you were my mentor, uh, and as I've continued to, to follow your work after this, is that in some ways you sort of uh, go against the stereotype of a seminary professor in that you are obviously very curious, very smart, you can do all of the Greek and Hebrew, you can do all of the grammar, you can do all of the conversational, deep theology, all the historical theology, but for you, if you can't put it into a package that people can understand, you're really missing out on the opportunity to affect change.
1: It's it's actually funny. One of the uh, I, I was preaching one time when I was uh, was younger, and uh, and I came out, and you know, if you anybody that's uh, that's preached, people's you know say things sometimes awkwardly after the message as they're greeting you and you're walking out. And I remember this guy looked at me in the eye and he, and he said, "Boy." I listened to your sermon and and you're really smart. <laughs> 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 and you know and and I thought to myself, "Oh boy. That's like the worst compliment that you could ever get when you're uh when you're speaking because I because I think that that was his nice way of saying that uh my language missed the mark and all I really demonstrated was uh, kind of like uh little bit what Paul says in First Corinthians thirteen. The man wasn't telling me that I was being unkind there, but I, you know, I, I spoke uh, really maybe beautiful and uh, interesting words that uh, demonstrated my own education, but that didn't what, that didn't connect with this person at all. And that was a that was a kind of a key moment in my development as a as a speaker. It's, it wasn't you know it's not an ego thing. You don't want it's it's not a compliment ultimately for someone to be impressed by your learning. If the, the bigger compliment is that. Something that they, that you said they were able to really hear, and, and in the sense of hearing, being able to understand what you were trying to get. And, and the, you know, the ultimate compliment is when the words that we use can help someone else connect better with God.
0: Absolutely. And that that leads into the question that I like to kick off all of our interviews with, and that's, uh, what is your philosophy or approach to preaching in general? And I probably a lot of it will relate to what you just spoke to, but if you have a sort of a mission statement or a guiding principle for your preaching, what might it be?
1: I kind of said it. uh, What what I like to say is uh, I read the scriptures in search of the, the deepest truths in the Bible so that I can ponder them, reflect on them, live them out of my own life, and then communicate with others in in those truths in ways that are understandable, loving, and transformative.
0: Well, one of the things I love about our audience is that we have a lot of preachers who get to preach and give sermons. We also have some lay folks and also some volunteers and leaders in churches that get to lead small groups. And whether you're preparing a sermon or a small group, that process can be broken down into tons of little steps, but there's sort of two big phases, uh, which you've already alluded to. And the, the first is how we read Scripture, and then secondly, how we translate it for the people to whom we're preaching and leading in small groups. And so let's start with the reading of Scripture. Tell us a little bit about how you've come to Understand and approach the process of reading scripture, um, and I'll let the listeners know that you have a new book out called "Realigning with God: Reading Scripture for Church and World." And so, uh, maybe you can give us an overview of the book and how uh, you approach the reading of scripture.
1: I came to follow uh, the Lord when I was a, a young person. I grew up in the in the church. I grew up in the United Methodist Church, and. Uh, when I was uh, fifteen or sixteen um you know i i 'd given my heart to jesus that 's the way I thought about it when I was really small like in in third or fourth grade right by the time I was a teenager I was um really just struggling with the kind of things that teenagers go through. but remember one day uh, my youth pastor had challenged me to read the bible and uh I thought, you know, that's not I didn't want to read the Bible, but whatever was going on in my life in 10th grade, I remember my Bible was sitting there, the one I'd gotten when I was 10 years old and and I remember one night I I just maybe even out of desperation, I was thinking about my youth pastor because I admired him and he said I should read the Bible. I'm like, you know what? I'm going to give it a chance. So, I opened up the Bible and I remember praying to God, uh, "Lord, if you really exist, reveal yourself to me through your word." Mm. You know, and I started reading the scriptures then, and it wasn't like that second I had this conversion, but it was within a couple of weeks that I really felt God was speaking to me uh, through the Bible, and I, you know, and I went, we had revivals at the church I grew up, um, and I, you know, I gave my life to Jesus, and so I've always had a real love uh, for the Bible because I knew what it had done in my life, and yeah. so I've always tried to keep that, you know, it's not really revivalistic uh, Fervor, because I, you know, I get excited about things, but uh, it's more like um, when I read the scriptures, the f- the first step, and this is to get back to really answering the question, is uh, I pray that God would astonish me.
0: Mm.
1: The, the, the longer that I've, you know, the longer you've been reading scripture, sometimes you just kind of think you know what it says already. Right. Been down the, some of these passages many times, like especially when you get around, say Advent or Easter, and you just got a handful of texts that you've heard, you know, dozens if not hundreds of times by the time you get to a certain age. And so that I like to always the first step I think when reading the Bible is is, is opening yourself up to the possibility of astonishment all over again. And so I like that, Lord, Lord, astonish me anew. And then uh, in essence, it's um when you when you come to the Scripture with uh, with that kind of goal. To be astonished, you know, to me, then the next steps are, you know, breathe in scripture, Um, read it carefully, read it slowly, uh, maybe read it out loud even. So you want to hear the words, you want to see the words, use a couple different translations i mean for the for the 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 your seminary trained audience if you do have the ability in any of the original languages uh, that's a time that you when you're reading small passages to try to look at it that way but read multiple translations and just try carefully to to see uh what's actually there and begin to allow the text to ask questions and so you want to um look at the uh, individual words you want to uh if you don't understand something, you want to ask simple questions, like something is like, "What's the meaning of this word?" And so you want to, you know, make observations, then ask questions, and then try to find more observations to answer those questions. So in a sense, it's uh, the, you, you come to the scriptures first to listen uh, carefully, and those multiple translations will help you too because every translation is a, is essentially a, a commentary on. The original text, and so it'll you'll see different things in the different translations that you might not have seen in another one, and then you know reflect, ponder. Um, It's helpful to have a pen and paper or your computer open and write down the thoughts and insights that you have into the passage. Always read what comes before and after the passage. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a that's a critical piece. And when you're focusing on a small part of the scripture, you also want to think about how it fits into the whole. And so. Now to kind of jump back to the the book that, um, that I wrote, Realigning with God, what it tries to do, it tries to do two things. It tries to essentially paint the big picture of the Bible because it's important for us as we read smaller sections. Uh, you know, we live in a soundbite world, you know, uh, Twitter, different things. Uh, and it's easy just to pull something out of the Bible and just kind of toss it out there. But the Bible has a context, and so one of the key things is Uh, when we're reading a smaller passage, is to remember the big story. And my book, Realigning with God, the first half of it, it's about, the book's about 200 pages, about the first 100 pages or so, start with Jesus. And I start with Jesus announcing the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. And Mm. his, his core message there was, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Uh, I suggest a better way of translating repent is the idea of realign. I'll, I'll come back to why I, I, I use that translation a little bit later. But I start with Jesus, and I, and I say that you know, Jesus' core message was he was calling his audience to essentially come back to God, to repent, to realign, to uh, uh, turn back towards God. And Jesus was speaking both to Jewish persons and uh, non-Jewish persons. So we had a message that was for the whole world and then Jesus is announcing this kingdom that's coming, this new age of salvation. And so in my estimation when we read the Bible, Jesus right there in his initial words gives us kind of the interpretive lens for reading scripture. We always want to read scripture as when we think about being astonished in a way to hear how is scripture calling, you know, first me as the as the reader, how is it calling me to realign myself with the word. And then how is by me realigning, how then do I communicate both the persons who are already following Jesus and not yet following Jesus to join me in realigning with what Jesus is doing? And if you think about Jesus' own ministry, as soon as he calls, he has that call to realign in both Matthew and Mark, and he announces the kingdom in Luke, what's the first thing he does? He calls disciples and he calls his disciples to come to him. And he promises he's going to make them fishers of men. He wants to call them to this mission of announcing the kingdom to others. He doesn't just call one disciple. He calls two brothers right off the bat. Right, the old, right. He 12, so he calls them into a community. So he calls them to be a community on mission, and he calls them to follow him, which in first century language, that's a call to imitate Jesus. We would call that, you know, Christ-likeness. Mm-hmm. Uh, or even holiness. And so, right there, um, we have a method for reading scripture. My job as a reader is to be the first convert to the text. Mm. And then once I've moved to where Jesus is, um, I can help others. And, you know, Jesus, when, again, he, he calls people to a mission. He calls people to, to a community. He calls people to holiness. I use the language GPS in my book to kind of summarize that. So I say the G stands for global or local mission. Um, The P stands for persons in community. The S stands for spiritually transformed. Uh, And so it's Jesus is calling us, and I would suggest the scriptures call us to be this community that exists for God's mission and whose ethic is to reflect God's character to the world. And so, when I read the text, I'm I'm reading it through essentially that lens. I want to know how is this text going to shape me to be on mission better for God? How is this text calling me to be part of a community and what does that community look like? And how is this text calling me to, to become a different person, to allow God's grace to work in my life and to make me essentially more holy or to sanctify me? And not every text deals with all three of those things, but almost every text deals with at least one of those. And so, realigning with God, I start with Jesus, and then I go back to Genesis, and I work from Genesis to Revelation, essentially following this outline of creation, uh, God's perfect world, then the fall, which is Genesis 3 to 11, where it talks about how God's perfect world was marred by human sin, and so that all people now are in need of God's grace and creation itself is broken. And so, God's solution to that then is to call it people to Himself. Those mm-hmm. people mm-hmm. called Israel. And so, the Old Testament story is the preparation or Act One for God's ultimate solution. So, we can walk through the Old Testament, seeing what does it look like to be the people of God. Uh, Living in the World. Again, this is a long story, making it short here. (laughs) We, We get back to Jesus, and the climax of God's mission is the life, death, resurrection of Jesus that solves the essential problems of a broken creation and lost people. And then Jesus sends out his church again. Uh, into all the world. And the book of Genesis starts out with all people in view. If you read the first 11 chapters, it's not Israel, it's the whole world.
0: Right, right. Then the
1: Bible narrowly focuses on, essentially on Israel for a time. And then once Jesus is raised from the dead, the Bible opens back up to the whole world. And Jesus then sends out his church into that world, into the, basically the world of Genesis 1 to 11 again to carry the good news in anticipation of the happy ending, the uh, uh, the new creation where God's going to make all things new, where there's full redemption, and it, it tells a good story. And so we always want to read individual passages in light of this big story that God is trying to tell with our lives with the goal of the big story then becomes our story bit by bit as we read the Bible. So, um, I, I think I'll, I better stop. I've been giving you a really long answer there, but, uh, that's a little bit about the first part of the book and a little bit about methods. I'll let you follow up.
0: Yeah. Well, I, I love it. And to jump back sort of to the, to the very beginning, you talked about your prayer being asking God to astonish you, uh, with the word. And, and I think that's, that's great because, you know, how many times do we just sit down and think, well, I got it, you know, I got to study, I've got to read for the sermon or you know it's my quiet time I got to get this done so I can check it off my list but to really come with this desire to to be astonished and and to have excitement I imagine that that kind of helps you keep your passion going. Because, you know, as, as a biblical scholar, as a seminary professor, as a writer, a thinker, speaker, someone whose basically job is to be in the Word all the time, I would imagine even though it has played such a central role in your life and and it oftentimes astonishes you, I'd imagine you probably do go through seasons where reading the Scripture can be a little bit of a trudge. Am, am I off base in, in assuming that?
1: Yeah. I mean, everybody has seasons. And I mean, I think that's a good word even for the, for the whole audience, wherever you are, because it's, it's not like every day can be a mountaintop experience. I mean, and and things happen in our lives that are challenging things that challenge our faith. Um, and you know, and, and you, you pray for astonishment and sometimes, um, it might just be a little bit, sometimes it's a, it's a big, massive insight, but, uh, yeah, there's, there's, everybody goes through uh, some dry dry spells, but I found, and maybe th- I think in the middle of some dry dry spells is where I actually thought about that that prayer for astonishment. I was reading a book by um, Ellen D- Davis. It's called Wondrous Depth. It's a book on preaching also. She's a professor up at, at Duke, at Duke Divinity School. And she talked about that astonished. And I thought, that's fantastic. That's exactly the word that I needed. And it's, it's, it actually has really helped. because um, in some ways, you no know, matter how academic I've ever been, um, I'm still that, that kid that was sitting there praying, hoping that God was going to speak and just asking it. And it happened. And I've kind of never lost a track of that. Again, doesn't mean I don't go through some dry spells or obstacles, sure. but the Bible's always been, it's been an oasis. And it's, um, if you listen to it carefully, it, there's always something good there.
0: One of the aspects of the book that I'm particularly looking forward to is the chapter called Israel's Life in the Land, Prophets and Writings. Because, as you mentioned, a lot, uh, and you mentioned this somewhere on your website too, that a lot of resources that kind of look at the overarching view of the Bible, they tend to spend pretty much all of their allotted Old Testament time on Genesis and Exodus. And those are obviously. You know, foundational central narratives, those are you know, going to influence everything else in the Bible because of, of where they are in the Bible and the way that they are constantly referenced throughout the rest of Scripture. But as I, as I mentioned on a couple episodes ago, in January, I got to go to the Holy Land for the first time, which also corresponded with, in my morning reading time, I was going through First and Second Kings and into Chronicles, and I was actually going places and standing places that I was reading about that morning. It just, it, it sort of, speaking about making the Scriptures a Astonishing again! It's just this reminder that that these are real places and real people, and these are not just stories. You know, this is not just like a, a sort of a more spiritual version of the Lord of the Rings. Like the, this this speaks to the real story of humanity and and our interaction with God. And and so maybe can you give us a little bit of a preview of that section of the book, or how you understand uh, some of that history of Israel that maybe we as preachers might sometimes skim through or just look for the one or two interesting stories like Elisha calling a she-bear on some, you know, children making fun of him.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's that's good. My my book basically is trying to introduce uh, an idea of reading the Scriptures as a guide uh, to God's mission, and, and, and it follows a lot of the narrative frameworks. A lot of people do the Bible narrative, and I kind of summarize it as creation, fall, Israel, Jesus, church, and world. And so— <laughs> Uh, you know, how do you fit in Israel's life in the land and, and into that story? Um, you know, the, the Pentateuch, Genesis to Deuteronomy, gives us the foundation, the creation, the exodus. But then you get, if you're reading the scripture, you run into Joshua, Judges, uh, Samuel and Kings. And if you know Israel's story, it's it's not particularly positive, we might, might right, say. right, they have A lot of struggles. And, and it's easy to kind of judge and think, why? How are these people? Why were they doing this? Uh, and then, you know, you get to the New Testament and uh you know you find that the church is in the world and so the old testament's really critical in our day because we live now live in a time where uh, christianity is essentially on the wane in the western world it's uh you've probably heard me in class say this uh, but since 2009 there's 5000 less christians every single day in the western world and uh some of your listeners are, are really feeling that like uh you know they they talk about their country their cultures are changing and all these things so essentially what we find ourselves in today and a lot of times we feel isolated as followers of Jesus, we're basically back into the position of the early church, and in some way, uh, like Israel. Because Israel, if we go by the scriptures, uh, they had encountered the one true God, and they had all these events, and they're surrounded on all sides by nations and people uh, that essentially, for lack of knowledge, are worshiping other gods and living by different practices. And so, when we read J- Israel's story, what we're what we're reading about is the potentials and the pitfalls of what it looks like to live as God's missional people in a world that doesn't yet know God. Mm. And, and and so, you know, and in, in Israel, we also see what it looks like to try to live out that ethos that's central in the Old Testament, but also is reaffirmed by Jesus. And when you, if you summarize Israel's laws and their foundation, it comes down to loving God and, and loving neighbor. And again, most of us have, have uh, you know, could, could, could probably recite that as the great, the great commandments, the two great commandments. But um, Israel's story there in the land um, shows us what it looks like when that works out, and when it doesn't, and it essentially Israel's life serves as um, an encouragement and exhortation to faithfulness and simultaneously a warning against the dangers of disobedience. And positively, we're exhorted then to love God and love neighbor. And the Old Testament and all its legal system and its ethic were designed to allow Israel to reflect that to the world if they lived out the law. But what's interesting is um, the Old Testament holds on to all of Israel's mistakes. Mm, I mean, uh how many countries or how many places write their history and put all their bad examples in there?
0: Right, right. But
1: it's there for a key warning because, and this is important even for the 21st century now, we're back trying to be God's people surrounded on all sides by persons who are worshiping different gods or no gods at all, all these different world religions. If you flip love for God, what's the opposite of it? It's, it's idolatry. Uh, and, and, and idolatry, at least in the Old Testament, it wasn't simply that Israel didn't believe in their Lord anymore. It's that they other, let other gods come to the same level as the Lord. You know, and so idolatry isn't just not believing God, in the true God anymore. It's trying to think that you can believe in the true God and mix all these other gods in. And modern people believe in just as many gods as the ancients did. We just don't call them gods all the time. We have things like money, power. Uh, sex, and you can just run through the limits of things that we elevate to the level of God. And so Israel's history really warns us about the opposite of loving God, which is idolatry. And that Mm -hmm. would just, and we could go on for a long time just about that. And, you know, the flip side of loving neighbor is what? It's injustice. Mm
0: -hmm. What does
1: it look like when we don't love our neighbor? And Israel essentially got itself into trouble because of idolatry and indifference to justice. And that's then where the prophets fit in. The prophets came. God sent the prophets because God's people didn't love God and they didn't love their neighbor. And so the prophet's role was then to call God's people back to their roots. And and again, this is a part of my book. Um, One of my main messages of it when I talk about the prophets a lot of times the church thinks about having a prophetic witness that we're somehow telling people outside the church how they ought to live.
0: Mm, right. But right.
1: When you read the old testament, the prophets did say things to foreign countries, but most the most devastating things that the prophets said, they were speaking to God's people. Right. And so that's an important element we have to get back. It's the prophets are calling God's people back to their roots.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, and, and and so, my book really makes a big deal out of, out of that. So, the, the, the story of Israel is an essential part of it. It shows, the again, the potential and the pitfalls of living as God's people, and we see what God's reaction to that is. God sends prophets to call them back while simultaneously the prophets point forward to a time when God is going to do something incredible. That's going to ultimately be what Jesus does on the cross and his resurrection, but also the prophets look forward to a time when God's going to do something inside the lives of God's people themselves, and that's anticipating the work of the Spirit, which is to empower us and cleanse us in light of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. So uh, that's a little teaser about the book. I say a lot more in the, in the actual pages, but it's, it's, it really tries to lift up, the essential nature of Israel's scriptures and the whole story. And all those things are very relevant for us today. Again, it's a different culture as the iron age, but, Those show the struggles of what it looked like to live for God when you're surrounded on all sides by the temptations uh, of, of the nations.
0: With the time that we have left, I have a set of questions that I ask all of our guests. And this first one has sort of two sides of the same coin. You're welcome to tackle either one or both if you're interested. And that is, what is an example of a difficult sermon for you to prepare or preach? Or do you have any favorite experiences from your time as a preacher and a teacher?
1: I would say when I look back, the most difficult times to, for me to preach. The, the one I can remember uh, was um, was right after September 11th. It was because that was so devastating. And I'd never, I was, I think I was only 31 or 32 at the time. And uh, and I was still pretty young. And, and I just happened to be up that next Sunday at, the, at a church that I was preaching at fairly regularly and I actually even had to give a message at, at Asbury and you know I don't actually know if I even hit it very well that day because you just had so many swirling things going in the head that w- that was incredibly difficult just because of the overwhelming circumstances and you may remember all these people showed up at church and right. I was still almost kind of right. shocked angry uh, it, it was that, w- that was I remember that being particularly difficult so I would say anytime when you really find yourself in the midst of either a national or some kind of personal circumstance, that it becomes difficult to preach because sometimes you, your raw emotions can run over, and those aren't always those aren't always sanctified, and we have to be really careful right. in those moments. So that that would be an example of a difficult time. I mean, favorite times to preach. Um, I have to say, I've always really enjoyed preaching. What I what I did when I was preaching regularly is I would plan out. A series in advance because one of the things that's always helped me to preach, um, I've always been pretty good at exegesis. I mean, that's kind of my background, but the part that I always have to work on is is illustrations, kind of bring the text to life. And so I like to prepare well in advance, at least in in part. I mean, there's always the big prep right the week before, but I try to get get things laid out and then kind of let the sermon kind of percolate around. And I've always found that the illustrations kind of find you once you've done the exegetical work if you give the sermon time to rest. So my my favorite times have been when I've put together series. I always like to preach uh through books, not meaning every verse but different key passages in a books and I, and some of my favorite experiences have been putting together series on the some of the lament psalms in the book of psalms and those were just so fun cuz the they've they've been so meaningful in my own life and being able to share those and I I've preached through Philippians a couple of different times and the, the, those are my favorite moments when I actually kind of laid the things out and did the exegetical work and then the illustrations, uh, they found me or I found them yeah, and right. they just kind of came together and you see that they really help people. And th- th- those are the, you know, you don't always know what's going to happen until you, you you really don't have control of your sermon because uh, it has to be the spirit working in somebody else's life. But it's those, have, those have been the times that were really the most fun when, when um, preparation, preparation. And the way it came off, and everything went together really well.
0: Well, who have been some of the most impactful preachers or non-preacher communicators in your life, and maybe a little bit about why?
1: Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. I, and I, I've always tried to find things. I'm going to answer it a couple different ways. Um, for me, and I think this is important for anybody that's learning to speak. Um, we all have our own style, and you have. And the, the sooner you own who you are as a speaker, the easier it gets. Um, this quotation won't sound particularly Christian, but if you take it in the right sense, it's not bad. It's um, and and I I'm not even sure remember exactly where I heard it, but it's if if I want to be free, I have to be me. Mm. And, and the reason I think it's really good for preachers and uh, uh, is um, I used to mimic people I thought were good speakers, but I'm if you know me, I, I'm a I'm very shy. Um, I I was so shy when I used to first preach. I'm very nearsighted. I wouldn't wear glasses, so I have to, so I couldn't see the audience. Yeah, and, and they would everybody yeah. think I had great eye contact, but I, it was because I couldn't see anybody, and I was just looking out <laughs> at blurry people and stuff. I mean, that that's how I started, and I'm just trying to you know mimic others. And the most freeing thing for me is I it's it's back. One of my favorite preachers was Erwin McManus, and it was because of his style because he sat down on a stool and preached. You know, and I just always stood behind the pulpit, which uh, which I still I can do it now, but that always felt a little awkward. And I saw him sitting down, and I thought, wow, he looks really comfortable up there. And, yeah. and I remember just popping out a stool one day, and I was in a context where I was where that was okay to try that. And I and I thought, wow, this is the most comfortable I've ever felt as a preacher. And I felt like at that moment I became myself. And, and as soon as I got comfortable with my own limitations, my own kind of quirkiness mannerisms, that's when I uh, was able to become a good preacher. Now, like I mentioned, Earl McManus, I've I've enjoyed um, listening to any great communicators. I remember when I was um, young, it was when Bill Clinton first got elected, and some of the debates, he did really well in the debates, and it was because of his, he he, he, he was able to um, look very empathetic to the audience when they asked him questions, and I, I guess it was the first George Bush was running against him, and he always looked awkward when he was asking questions, and right. Clinton just looked very likable. I remember he walked up and approached the audience. I remember looking, I'm like, wow, what a connection. And so, you know, I, I always watch people when they speak and I, I I watch, I listen to a lot of podcasts. I watch a lot of videos and I'm just always looking for the ways that people connect. And and the cool thing is, uh, Dan is uh, there's dozens of ways to connect with an audience. And what you just have to do, especially when you're learning is, if something doesn't feel right for you, I mean, you can try it for a while and see if it becomes more natural. But you th- just know there's multiple ways to do it well. And I, had, I wrote down a quote I wanted to share on the podcast. I got a chance to uh, talk to Erwin McManus uh, one time. And I asked him, you know, what's the best kind of style to use if there was an a- effective style? And, and he said this. and I think this is really wise. He, he said um, in a lot of ways, this is his quote. Um, in a lot of ways, I think what it comes down to is one simple thing. Does the person listening view you as the kind of person that they would like to in some way become? If the, mm. if the answer is no, no new approach of preaching is going to help you. If the answer mm. is yes, it's amazing how much people will adapt to your style.
0: Oh, wow. wow. And, and
1: to me, that's the most freeing thing that I've ever learned. Because I can remember, I had a preaching class at Asbury, and and my, my, was pretty good, but I remember another one of my colleagues had a, a, a class with a different professor, and he, he talked about not having facial hair, making sure if you wore glasses that you would remove them or make sure that they weren't too thick, and just all these kind of just, you know, strange things. You know, what are you supposed to do if you wear glasses? You know, you can find right. while you're preaching, and it's like, you know, in, in a sense, it's, it's not that at all. It's about doing your work coming and being authentic, sharing yourself in the message. And I think if you watch great communicators, I'd say John Maxwell is a great communicator too, Earl McManus, Bill Hybels. um, Watch TED Talks and see some of the different ways people deliver things. Um, Tony Robbins is a great communicator. They all bring different styles. And uh, that can be freeing. But again, I'll just go back. If you want to be free, um, you have to be yourself. I'll praise phrase yeah. it that way and I mean and, and so find watch preachers until you find someone you say wow you know what I might never be as powerful as that person was but I think I could use that style and that would Allow me to be myself. And that that's 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 one of the that, that was the biggest um jump that I had in my own ability to speak in front of audience was just learn I'm enough. You know, God loves me, God made me the way that I am and my own gifts, talents, and and strengths. If I'm just myself, that's enough.
0: Do you have any book recommendations, any books that have been influential on your preaching or communication?
1: There's a book called Um Words That Work. I can't remember the author. Oh, it's Frank Luntz. He was actually a political advisor. He's one of these guys that ran campaigns for various uh, candidates. It's called Words That Work. And the subtitle something like um, Making Sure What You Say Is What People Hear. Yeah. So it's a book on making, again, on, it's on words, because I think wordsmithing is really important. As far as um, preaching books, I don't have a lot of recommendations. Um, I I just think uh, to to learn how to that you just want to listen to a lot of good speaking and read lots of of of, of fiction that will help you. To learn how to speak and tell stories really well, and you know, my you know my own favorites, and it's always that's always so subjective. I, I love John Steinbeck. I love Ernest Hemingway, and the the elegant way that they were able to write really strong, clear sentences. And those are some things that have helped me.
0: The last thing is, if there are folks out in our audience, I want to get in touch and say hi, or have questions, or just want to follow what you're doing. What is the best way for them to to follow your work?
1: Yeah, the uh, the best way is I, I was able to get my own name for a domain, so it's um it's easy um Brian B R I A N Russell uh, dot org. So Brian Russell dot org, and there's two S's and two L's in Russell, and that will get you to my uh, my blog and some different, uh, different resources. And I, I try to blog regularly, I have a lot of good um, good essays and some things on preaching and uh, even excerpts from my book and stuff are on there. But that, that's a great place to connect with me.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being with us today, Brian. Uh, all of your wisdom, all your experience. I know the book is going to be great. I can't wait to get my hands on it. Thank you so much for your time today.
1: Oh, you're welcome, Dan. And uh, thanks to your audience for listening. It's a, it's a privilege to have an audience. And so this. thank you very much.
0: Thank you so much for joining me for episode 15 of Art of the Sermon. You can find show notes, including links to some of the things that we talked about, at artofthesermon.com. As always, I would love to hear what you think about the show, and I want your input to be a part of the conversation. So you can connect with me through Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, all at username Art of the Sermon. If you'd like to support the show, I would encourage you to subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play Music, or your favorite podcast app so that new episodes are downloaded as soon as they're live. And of course, in addition to sharing the show with your friends, the best way to help us out is to leave a review in the iTunes store. This lets iTunes know that you care about the show and want other people to find it. Our next episode is scheduled to go live on May 19th, and so in two weeks, you'll get to hear more from my interview with Dr. Brian Russell. Thank you again so much for joining me, and I'll catch you next time on Art of the Sermon.